Resiliency Within with host Elaine Miller Karras is brought to you by Trauma Resource Institute Incorporated. Visit traumaresourceinstitute.com. Welcome to Resiliency Within, featuring your host, Elaine Miller Karras. In unprecedented times, our beliefs and well being are put to the test. When we take the things we've learned in life and look at challenges in a whole new way, we learn to develop resiliency, which can then be used to promote healing and personal strength. Now, here is Elaine Miller Karras. Hello, this is Elaine Miller Karras, and welcome to Resiliency Within. I am very excited about our guest today on our show. I've known Glenn Schiraldi for a number of years, and um, I recently saw that he had written a wonderful new book that I'll talk about in just a second. And we connected after not speaking for a couple of years, and um, here he is on the show. But today, we're going to be talking about recovering from adverse child experiences. And Dr. Glenn Schiraldi will share his latest book, the Adverse Childhood Experiences Recovery Workbook, Heal the Hidden Wounds from Childhood Affecting Your Adult Mental and Physical Health. He's going to explore the links between adverse childhood experiences, which we'll call ACEs to make it simpler, which occur in the first 18 years of life and health outcomes in adulthood. We'll discuss the overview of the ACEs research and the principles, self-managed skills and professional treatments that effectively restore inner wholeness and increase well-being and happiness. But I want to tell you a little bit about Glenn because he's had quite a career. So first of all, he's a retired Lieutenant Colonel who was with the, who was with the U.S. Army Reserve. He has served on the stress management faculties at the Pentagon, the International Critical Incident Stress Foundation, the University of Maryland School of Public Health, where he received the Outstanding Teaching Award and other teaching service awards. He has written 14 books, which we don't have time to mention every single one, but I certainly, before I knew him, had read the first edition of the Post-Traumatic Stress Disorder Sourcebook that was very um, important for me as I was learning more about trauma. So he's also the founder of the Resilience Training International, um, which teaches people how to prevent and recover from stress-related conditions like PTSD, depression, and anxiety um, with optimizing mental health and performance under pressure. But Glenn also graduated from the U.S. Military Academy, West Point, and he's a Vietnam-era veteran. And you know, Glenn, thank you for your service and your continued service um, to the world um, community. And I know that you went on later and got your your uh, PhD from the University of Maryland. Now, you and your wife also are involved in addiction recovery programs that you also helped to to uh, uh, steward. So you're going to have to mention that a little bit for us to know. So anyway, that's a lot. So you've yeah. done a lot in this world. And so as we get started, is there anything in particular on your mind that you want to talk about first? What's going through your head? I know you've just come back from a family reunion. It is just a delight to be back with you <laughs> to hear what you're doing. It's amazing what you're doing to help people around the world. And it's a pleasure to be reconnected again. Well, I'm very excited to, that you're on the show. And I mean, um, Glenn and I spent some time actually in Washington trying to talk to some folks to get their interest about the concerns about climate change. So I think we actually went to the White House, didn't we? We went to the White House and we went to uh, uh, Homeland Security, I think is what we did. We did a lot that. We did a bunch of stuff that one day, I think. But anyway, I'm so glad to have you on the show. So let's get talked. Let's, let's start talking about the things that um, we know are very important. 
um, which is adverse child experiences that we all know about it. So can you tell us a little bit about the original 10 ACEs? And then I know that there's been expanded work with adverse child experiences as well. Sure. Back in 1998, two medical doctors who had access to over 17,000 records in San Diego at uh, Kaiser Permanente, who's an HMO basically, were regular folks, came in, and these were not uh, at-risk people. They were white, middle-class, uh, educated, health-insured. And uh, what they found is that 10 adverse childhood experiences, the original 10, uh, predicted, you name the medical disease, the psychological disease, the functional problems. Um, and uh, the 10 ACEs originally were um, three kinds of abuse, sexual, physical, emotional, two kinds of neglect, physical and emotional. And then living in a house where a parent was absent, typically divorce or separation, there was domestic violence, somebody was incarcerated, uh, someone was mentally ill or suicidal, uh, or doing drugs. And so that was just the 10 most common. But what they found is um, the more of those people had experienced, the more likely they were to have uh, depression, anxiety, PTSD, uh, autoimmune disorder. I mean, just about anything that's been studied is predicted uh, in a linear fashion. So the more of these ACEs, the more likely people are to have these problems. Um, and functional problems too, like... Uh, job problems, occupational finances, homelessness. And as you mentioned, Elaine, there's tons of other ACEs that were not in the original study. Uh, death of a parent from any cause, uh, missing parent, deployment, uh, kidnapping, death of a family member for any reason, uh, uh, serious injuries. There's all sorts of things that can happen. Stress on the mother because of an unfaithful husband. Even prenatally, the stress gets transmitted to kids. And who understands that when these kids become 20-year-olds and they're having problems? Uh, but often, often, not always, of course, but often you can look back and see that there were scars and wounds that were imprinted in childhood. And if they're not resolved, then people suffer. Uh, the costs of the economy that are astronomical in terms of uh, welfare and, and health care and uh, criminal justice and all sorts of problems. So this so, is not only a costly problem, economic, Glenn, but human Glenn, suffering. Do you, do you think that the pandemic also plays in, that that also could be an adverse child experience, the pandemic? Uh, well, I think, sure, people, a lot of the health indicators increased during that time when people you know, had cabin fever and stuck together. Yes. Uh, so sure, you, you kind of got to look at everything that's going on in people's lives. But I, I find that what's intriguing about these ACEs, a lot of times we never talk about them because, you know, if it's a soldier, for example, we tend to think, well, you had combat stress or you were raped recently, but fail to look back to early childhood, things that made people more vulnerable, say, to PTSD or depression and so on. And I think I read um, in the past too that when people um, have are serving in the military, many of them have higher ACEs compared to the general population, um, right. especially in the going into the the I guess in the service as an eighteen year old, you may be leaving a household 
where all these adverse child experiences existed. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. then you go into the military and then you go into combat or have one of the other experiences and then can exacerbate your problems with stress and anxiety. That's exactly right. And uh, a lot of times our psychologists in the military are not trained to treat the early childhood problems. But the same thing with cops, with firefighters, a lot of these high-risk groups where suicide is prevalent, uh, you've got to look at the whole picture, not just the recent operational stress. So one of the reasons that I really was very excited about hearing about your book was these are these are very, um, the implications to society, as you've already mentioned, are huge. But then, you know, we need to talk about the healing aspect and how can we, if we, if I know that I have four adverse child experiences, and I know that in the research, many, much of it says, if you have four or more, you're at increased risk for many things. And if you have six or more, I think your lifespan is cut by 20. So we're not talking about something mm-hmm. that's benign, but we're also talking about something physiologically that happens when we're kids that has, that runs a course into adulthood. So what keeps us from healing from ACEs? What in your opinion keeps us from healing? It's hard to be aware what is imprinted below conscious awareness. And this may be a little long explanation, but, but there's a tremendous growth spread growth spurt in the brain between the last trimester of pregnancy to year three. And prior to year three, the left brain is not fully online. It's not fully developed. And so the left brain is, you know, what allows us to speak about bad stuff or consciously remember. Most of the stuff imprinted in the first three years of life is in the right brain, which is visual. Uh, It is strongly connected to the emotional survival portion of the brain. And a lot of these early childhood memories get get uh, imprinted below conscious awareness without words. And so fast forward 20, 30 years, when a psychologist says, well, tell me about your feelings, tell me about that experience, they don't recall because it's not they're not fully aware of it. But there is a dread, a sense of dread, typically. Maybe it's shame or maybe it's fear. Now, all that stuff's playing out. And the adult goes, well, I'm an adult. I should be able to work through this. Well, sometimes you can, and often one can't. Because who teaches people skills how to deal with, um, say, abuse as a, as a child? And by the way, after the third year of life, when the left brain is online, it still goes offline for really traumatic stuff, overwhelming stress. And so again, even later uh, childhood adversities can be stored in the right brain, non-verbally beneath conscious awareness. And so the way you approach healing is different than, you know, the typical talk therapies that our graduate students are getting trained in today. I mean, because if you're, if you had trauma at the age of two and it's stored differently, I mean, you may not know what happened to you that is causing your distress. So when we ask people, well, tell us what happened to you or what's the emotions about what happened to you, it may be a blank stare. They're mm-hmm. not certain. They just know something's not right. And you know that I have a, a, a proclivication of talking about it's in the body. And that's we know that it's stored in the body as well. And I know that you and I have talked about this before. But yeah. so then how do people then heal from these hidden wounds? What are some of the things that you have learned um, and that you talk about in your book? Yeah, so 
Sometimes people are fortunate and there's a quick fix. Some kind of therapies can have some pretty good results, but a lot of people never get to that kind of therapist who has those skills. Nevertheless, there are a lot of things people can do to heal. Some of those things can be done on their own uh, in a self-managed way. And again, not to not to say that uh, a skilled mental health professional isn't life-saving. Anybody who's had such a person with, for a family member's needed it knows how useful they are. But um, <clears throat> I, I've kind of described an eight-step healing uh, process. Uh, and whether or not someone gets mental health uh, professional service, these are skills that make us stronger, make us happier, more able to thrive. So of those eight steps, the first four steps help us to prepare to modify these old memories that are stored in a nonverbal way. Then step five and six is reworking those memories, rewiring them, because a lot of these memories will never rewire unless we actively uh, take, take steps. Then we transition to a happier life. And then step eight is knowing when and how to find um, good mental health uh, uh, professionals. So step one, and Elaine, I think you've done so much germinal work here and, and so much good in, in spreading this. Step one is regulate dysregulated arousal because if you're stuck on too high or too low, we're wired not to be able to think in a left brain way rationally with words. So until we can get back to that window of comfort uh, where we're neither too agitated to talk or too numb to talk, nothing really happens. And so uh, here's where these body-based skills that you've done such a great job of, of uh, promulgating um, are, are so wonderful and so easy to teach. You don't need to be a psychiatrist or a PhD in psychology. Um, for example, um, the right brain has strong connections to the emotional survival brain, uh, parts of the brain. And, um, and so a skilled clinician might say, okay, as you're talking about that rape, I notice you're getting really tense, your face is getting flushed. How about we put the story aside and I'd like you to stand up and from a good stable stance, I'd like you to just imagine pushing away a resistance. It could be the perpetrator, it could be stress, it could be anything. Um, and just track in your body how that feel, because as you know, Elaine, when we track, good things happen in the brain. All parts of the brain come back online. I love the kneading skill where you simply experiment with different ways to squeeze your forearm, go up and down that forearm, and then see how things have changed both there and throughout your body. There are grounding exercises where you simply... <clears throat> Get below, beneath your words and just say, feel the back of your, your back. Notice how your fingers expand when you breathe. Put a hand on the heart. Anywhere else that's feeling stress and just track what that feels like. And so there's some wonderful skills to just get us back to the resilient zone where we're neither numb nor uh, too agitated to talk. So that's step one. Well, and I love step one. <laughs> Thank you for sharing step one. I've spent a lot of my time in step one because if we don't do the step one, it's sometimes it's very hard to get to the next parts of your healing. And oftentimes yeah. people think, well, I can just talk this away. I can, maybe I'll just tell my emotions so many times that I'll be better. I can't tell you when I had an active psychotherapy practice that many people had been to really scores of 
mental health therapists trying to get this answer. But because of their trauma, as you say, in the right brain, they were talking to another a part of the brain network that didn't understand language. So it wasn't getting yeah. through. So this part is so important. But I'm I'm I can't wait to hear about step two now. All right. So what and, is that? And thank you, Elaine, <laughs> because you kind of that was the piece of the puzzle that I think um, I learned from you that is is sprinkled throughout the book. You know, you go back Aww. and you track. Mm. Every time you do a skill, you track. You don't stay in your head because the head usually means left brain talking. So step two is regulating strong, distressing emotions, because if they're not regulated, then it'll, it'll trip dysregulated arousal. And so there's some excellent skills. Um, here's where, for example, mindfulness comes in and self-compassion skills. So mindfulness teaches a person to say, whatever it is, it's okay, let me feel it. We don't judge it because that just makes us tense up and, and get more troubled. And then the self-compassion goes one step further and actually increases mindfulness of mindfulness's effectiveness. And so we might just say, okay, instead of fighting and trying to fix or stop a negative feeling, we just say, let me feel it. And then say to yourself, this is the self-compassion piece. Um, this is a moment of suffering. Suffering is part of life, meaning everybody goes through this. May I bring the compassion that I need to this moment? May I give myself the kindness that I need? Very effective. It makes mindfulness even more effective. There are eye movement skills derived from EMDR, which is a, a well-validated uh, trauma treatment, uh, which says bring to awareness whatever is distressing, images, uh, felt senses in the body, visceral feelings, bodily sensations, thoughts if there are thoughts, and just see if, if tracking your fingers back and forth uh, helps reduce the stress. Um, we can do that even with uh, feelings like, I feel so inadequate. Well, cognitive therapy might help people fight against that, but I think what's even more effective is just sit with it. How does it feel to say, I feel inadequate or I feel worthless, and just soothe that with mindfulness and and self-compassion. Um, nightmare management is a beautiful one. So many people have nightmares and they're afraid to talk about. They think people think I'm weird. Until you realize this is so common with people who've been traumatized. Yeah. And even the themes in nightmares are so common. And once you realize there's like a six-step process where you bring to awareness what's going on in the nightmare, maybe you keep a journal in the morning. Um, and then you change your reaction and rehearse it <clears throat> before you go to bed. And you also rehearse before you go to bed a different uh, scenario in, in the dream. You know, in the research, that's called imagery rehearsal training. But people can learn to do this on their own with, with great uh, effectiveness. There are some very nice skills to manage guilt and, and association. Um, but they're skills, and I, I want to empower people with skills, not just head knowledge. <laughs> so that's step two. And can I just say something about skills, too? I think it's mm -hmm. important when we talk about that, because 
not to say that insight is not also can be very important to say, oh, well, something happened to me. That makes sense. But when we learn skills, a person is not always with their therapist. And when you can integrate the skills into your activities of the daily living. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you may have a nightmare, but you're not going to see your therapist for two weeks. Well, what do you do with the residue of that nightmare? So you're talking about there's things that you can do right now when something like that happens that can help alleviate some of the suffering. Now, I got to add a little pepper in here, though, because, you know, salt and pepper, (laughs) because the other thing I found um, besides of what you've already said, which I totally am in agreement with, is I have found that even if when you're suffering, if you are experiencing the suffering and just go, well, just you're just suffering. This is a sensation that I have. Oftentimes there is another sensation. This is my, what else is true? And it may be, oh, I'm feeling no suffering in my feet or I'm feeling no suffering because sometimes it's your nose or your ear. And if you bring your attention there, Mm. that same process happens of settling the nervous system. And that's also a skill and it's, it's tracking. It's just tracking in a different way. So I'm just adding that to your, to your recipe. I appreciate that. Some people call it pendulating where you realize you're not overwhelmed. You're not, the whole world isn't suffering. There are pieces of your life and your body that is pretty okay right now. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Well, so then what's the next step? So step three is we prepare the brain to rewire by optimizing. And there are like nine steps which work together to, um, optimize the strength of the neurons, their health and functioning, their ability to reconnect and and form new neural pathways, uh, reduce oxidative stress, and um, uh, favorably impact the epigenomes and the telomeres and all these things that affect the way the brain develops. A lot of people think, well, it's all genes. Well, it is sometimes genes. 5% of diseases are strictly determined by genes. But the epigenomes sit alongside the DNA strands. And epigenomes are uh, malleable. They respond to our experiences for good or bad and determine how genes are expressed. They're like a dimmer switch. And so this jumps ahead a little bit, but... uh, the epigenomes can get passed from one generation to another. And it's one of the reasons why it's so important to, to heal so that we don't keep passing on these, these yeah. patterns that are seen in, in uh, families. <clears throat> so the big three, I'll, I'll just run through these kind of quickly uh, because I know we want to cover a lot, but people often think, well, I'm in pain, I'm depressed, I'm traumatized. Well, let's talk first about the basics. Are you sleeping in a regular regular sufficient way are you exercising because that'll affect the immune system we're now learning different ways to contract the muscles that cause the muscles to communicate with the immune system Um, the mediterranean like diet i don't know why we don't talk more about this in therapy but but people who follow a largely plant-based diet i'm not saying it has to be mediterranean but but the elements are Abundant fruits and vegetables. Most Americans are woefully short on that. Uh, You think about the microbiome. We're learning now that there's 100 trillion microbes in the gut. And if those are in balance so that the good guys outweigh the bad guys, then the gut speaks to the brain by this superhighway called the vagus nerve. It sends out immune uh, messages from the gut. Uh, it sends out serotonin, which affects sleep and depression, all these things. And if you think about it, 
the Mediterranean diet has plants, which has fiber, which feeds the good guys. It has um, fermented foods, like fermented cheeses, regularly eaten, which impact the, the uh, microbiome. Uh, I got to put in a quick word about uh, caffeine. Uh, the army was very interested thinking that caffeine would get more out of people. They found that when our troops are drinking two energy drinks or more per day, more PTSD, more anger, more depression, more anxiety, sleep and fatigue problems. And so it, it did just the opposite. And even if you're doing one energy drink a day to one a week, still many of those problems are greater. Uh, hydrating, uh, more than six cups of coffee per day are, are linked to uh, brain shrinkage and dementia. There's a ton of medical conditions, all of which are, are easily treated like thyroid problems and sleep apnea, which if we don't treat them, they just mess up the brain. They, they impair our ability to, to function. There's anticholinergic medications, which are often not talked about. Uh, acetylcholine is a neurotransmitter. <clears throat> An anticholinergic medita uh, medication blocks uh, acetylcholine. Where do you find these anticholinergic meds? Any sleep product, prescription or over-the-counter, antihistamines, tranquilizers, to me one of the worst medications is benzodiazepines, which yep. set people up for Alzheimer's. Uh, getting sunlight, avoiding toxins and pesticides and so on, uh, and managing stress, which is, you know, it's so easy to say, but... but uh, So hard to do. Skills, yeah. So that's step three. All right. Well, step three sounds, I mean, so when people say follow a good diet, nutritious diet, you're talking about the Mediterranean and you're talking about fruits and vegetables and really trying to be heav heavily focused on that because that helps the body physiologically. Mm -hmm. Okay. Right. You also whole grains, nuts and seeds. And the, the, the my plate, the USDA's uh, new guidelines are pretty consistent. I used to be embarrassed to talk about it, but now it's pretty good. So if you follow the USDA my plate, you can find that on the web. You're going to be pretty close to a good Mediterranean diet. So step four, oh, did you want to say something? Yeah, now? I'm going to say something because it's time for us to take a short break. So I would like to, if we could wait for step four till after the break, because I mean, I'm intrigued by this, but I also want to ask one quick question. So what you just talked about, is this all in the book too, that if people wanted to refresh about what you were talking about in terms of the scientific aspects of, of health and well-being and ways to heal from ACEs, is this all written in the book? It is. Ah, because <laughs> I, I want to say, now say the name of the book for me one more time before the break. The Adverse Childhood Experiences Recovery Workbook. All right. So I want everybody to go out and buy that book today. That's why I wanted you to say it one more time before the break. So we're going to come back and we're going to hear more from Dr. Glenn Schiraldi about step four. And there's, a, I mean, I don't think I'm going to have time for all the questions. So I'm going to have to have you back again. But anyway, I want to make sure we get the key ingredients for um, the recipe. So we will be back in just a couple of minutes and we will continue our conversation with Dr. Schiraldi. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The Trauma Resource Institute is a nonprofit organization cultivating trauma-informed and resiliency-focused individuals and communities worldwide. 
Our mission is to take people from despair to hope. We believe in a world where every child and adult has the capacity to recover from highly stressful and traumatic experiences. Check out iChill, our free app that helps you learn the wellness skills of the community and trauma resiliency models. Go to traumaresourceinstitute.com for more information. Elaine Miller-Karras' book, Building Resiliency to Trauma, The Trauma and Community Resiliency Models, is available on Amazon.com. The book is about how to cultivate resiliency during and in the aftermath of traumatic experiences. The book also addresses body-based trauma interventions combined with psychoeducation about the biology of trauma and resiliency. Elaine also offers personal consultations. For more information, you can contact her at elaine at resiliencywithin.com. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Elaine Miller-Karras co-founded the Trauma Resource Institute, Incorporated. The Institute provides trainings on the models Elaine developed, the Community Resiliency Model, or CRM, and the Trauma Resiliency Model, or TRM. If you would like more information about the Trauma Resource Institute or how to participate in trainings, visit the Institute's website at traumaresourceinstitute.com. That's traumaresourceinstitute.com. Trauma Resource Institute. Build resilience. Awaken hope. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa. Play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. This is Resiliency Within with Elaine miller Karras. To reach the show during our live broadcast, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to elaine at resiliencywithin.com. Now, back to this week's show. Welcome back. We are with Dr. Glenn Schiraldi, and I want to say the name of his book one more time, The Self-Esteem Workbook, The Resilience Workbook. Um, oh, I think I'm actually naming all of the, the the books that he's written. I want to go to the next. Oh, my goodness. Those are other books that he's written, but his new book that we're talking about today is The Adverse Childhood Experience Recovery Workbook, Heal the Hidden Wounds from Childhood Affecting Your Adult Mental and Physical Health. Now, Glenn, they can get that on Amazon, can't they, or in all sorts of different portals? Yes. All right. Well, we are now on step four of um, the workbook. So over to you. Okay. 
So step four is just a beautiful one, I think, and it has to do with strengthening and stabilizing the destabilized nervous system. So if you think about it, a lot of the images that are stored in the early years are right brain stored. And so what we're doing here is we're not going to rewire the trauma memory yet, but we're going to create new neural pathways that can be infused later on. And so real quickly, the principle is we can use imagery to re-experience what an ideal childhood would have been like, having good attachment figures. And so you can just imagine having two ideal parents, say, uh, who cradle you with love and they, they make you feel like you matter, you're valued, and that you give them joy. That's a big one. Um, life can be fun again, too. And so we can reimagine uh feeling enjoyed by a loving caretaker. Another option is to imagine that you as an older, wiser adult return to that suffering child and provide whatever was needed, encouragement, uh, you know, a, an embrace, um, physical protection, counsel, whatever is needed. And, uh, and so those scripts are kind of laid out then all of this that we've talked about so far is to prepare us for these next two steps, which is to rewire the actual childhood memory, the adverse childhood memory. So the float back skill was developed by the originator of EMDR, Francine Shapiro. And what you do is you take the triggering event, that is an event that reminds you of an old uh, adverse childhood experience, and first you soothe and settle the triggering event. Like just last week, my, my boss scowled at me and it, it threw me into a tizzy and I don't really know why. But on reflection, you see that it reminds you of something that happened in the first 18 years of life. So first you settle that recent experience with um, softening the body. Again, we start in the body and just open your heart to feel, open your gut to whatever it is, just feel it. You can use your uh, mindfulness, your self-compassion, your intentional breath, where you take an intentional in-breath and on the out-breath, just let awareness of that discomfort dissolve as you move somewhere else, say, in the body. Um, then you trace back to the early childhood adversity and bringing all those compassion skills, the soothing skills, uh, the self-compassion, you can add the eye movements, the tapping skills that are, are also uh, taught in the book. You can time trip. Just imagine you as a wiser person going back to that early experience, providing what was needed, safety, calm. Um, we can do that with thoughts. Now, again, you know, cognitive therapy works on core beliefs and it says punch back. The approach we use here is instead of trying to reason your way out of core beliefs is look at a, a, a a core belief like I feel inadequate, I feel unlovable, uh, soothe it in the body and then go back to an early time when you experienced it and soothe it again and tracking always. That's always the theme throughout this book. So that's you know, step five. Then, then I just want to say, I'm so excited to hear you talk about this because it is a way to weave some of the things that many people know about, which are our cognitive core beliefs, but really bringing it into the body. Um, yeah. Because that really does bring a level of awareness that when things happen under our awareness, that really, I think, potentiate the chances of healing. I just had to 
say that. So go ahead. Keep yeah, going. No, I appreciate that. And exactly. as you know, I'm very bullish on the cognitive therapy approach. I do. In I, its I proper love time, this. in its proper time, not initially, which is the way we train our graduate students to start out with it. Uh, and it's also important to be able to tell your story at some point down the road, but not initially. First, just get, get back into that resilience zone. So step number six is assuming these old childhood memories have kind of reworked and rewired is to get at the remaining shame, which is sometimes it's imprinted, you know, a little child yeah, doesn't hear shame. words. They may just see a mother scowl or an angry yell. And you don't understand the words, but you internalize uh, the, the emotion. And so a lot of different ways to rewire the shame. You can, again, use imagery. Imagine standing up to an abusive caregiver. And instead of feeling like I'm wincing and withdrawing, just look with compassion at that suffering person. Um, and maybe bring in you as the older, wiser person, protecting yourself. Maybe you see yourself pushing away or putting your hands up and saying, I don't have to internalize these negative emotions. I have a right to be happy and so on. So there's a lot of different uh, powerful ways to rewire that shame. And that's kind of the healing phase uh, to rework, rewire those old scars, those old hidden wounds. So Glenn, can I ask you a question on this? Do you believe that this would be best to do with another person, like with a therapist, or do you think that it'd be fine to do it on your own? It just depends on uh, where that person is. If I think a good trauma specialist, as we know, those are hard to find. Yeah. It, it blows my mind that we still don't train in our graduate schools a lot of trauma uh, skills. So if you can find a good trauma specialist, terrific. But as we also know, a lot of people will never seek a, a mental health professional for exactly. stigma, for cost, for... I don't think all it's sorts work. of reasons. I went to one 20 years ago. It was a bomb. I'm never going to go to another. Uh, so, yeah. So, but, but my career has been for those who either won't go to needed help or don't know how to find it. Here are some skills you can do. And here's how to know when it would be helpful to get, get that help. Somebody's really, really suffering and out of control pretty good indication you could use some coaching i like to use that metaphor yeah okay so where are we now which 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 step all right we're at step seven so assuming right. that the scars are relatively healed they're mostly healed then step seven is a transition step where we now we start to go to let's make life enjoyable thriving self-esteem happiness um and so i start with um character. And here's my thinking here. You can imprint shame in a child just by nonverbal expressions, by, by vocal tones, um, and that gets buried. And, and so we, you know, we learn to bring that out to the light of day and rework and rewire that. But we can also, and we don't talk too much about this in psychology, we can also induce our own shame by our choices. Now, let me just say here that a lot of times people in pain choose to do things that are not healthy. They get in bad relationships, they do drugs to kill a pain. So I'm not saying this in a judgmental way, but Abraham Maslow, one of the first 
among the first who broke with, with Freud in a meaningful way, said that, I'm going to paraphrase this a little bit, but when a person violates species virtues, meaning the things that are valued in just about every culture around the world, it registers as guilt or shame, often beneath conscious awareness, to our discredit. Conversely, when we adhere to those values, it registers to our credit. And uh, there was a Dutch study that found that post-traumatic stress symptoms increased as people thought their character was wanting, that they couldn't think well of themselves. And so without judging, you know, people make mistakes in the, in the addiction recovery program. My wife and I lead, we see people often carrying a load of shame. Often that is rooted in childhood and increased by decisions they've made. And so some of the strategies, uh, oh, I got to throw this in. Do you, do you remember, did you ever hear the, the name of a woman named Edith Eva Eager? Oh, I know her. Yes. She actually well, has been. Oh, how wonderful she is. She's, she's been working with our Ukrainian project. At, oh, as a matter wonderful. Of fact. Yes, I'm yes. so impressed with her. I, I love her. Yes, she's amazing. She is the ballerina, now is a psychotherapist. The ballerina who, on the same day that uh, the doctor death in the Nazi prison camp said, Eva's mother, you go to the chamber and, and Edith, I want you to dance for me. And about him, she said, he'll have to live with those those decisions, basically my conscience is clear. So all of that is just to say that there's a way to, to cultivate inner peace by coming to peace with our decisions. And so there are some strategies that help us do that. Uh, first of all, we can just stop and reflect. Is there anything in my life ruining my, med my reputation with myself? I developed a, a fearless searching moral inventory pattern of the AA inventory idea that says, here are a list of those species virtues that are valued around the world in different cultures. How have you done one to 10? You know, and people are not, not typically going to say I'm a zero or a 10, somewhere in between. And then you ask, um, are there times in your life when you've actually shown this virtue? And are there things you could do to uh, show that more often. So without judging, it's just inventory where we are and where we'd like to be. And then we make a plan, maybe one at a time, maybe tomorrow I'm going to be honest. I'm not going to even say a white lie, just start, starting small. Uh, forgiveness, sometimes people say it's optional. Personally, I think it is mandatory. But again, not prematurely done. I think once people have healed, then maybe we're able to then go back and, and forgive those offenders in our lives. And so there's a four-step process to that. Um, step one is to feel forgiven. It's very hard to forgive others when we haven't felt forgiven. On the other hand, if we felt forgiven and loved and someone says, that was a dumb thing you did, but I really still love you, then we know what it's like. And so uh, here, you're asking at the break about um, aha moments. I was training veterans in Texas one time, and a salty veteran, Navy veteran, came up to me. And if I ever saw him in a dark hallway in a ship, I'd probably turn and run. But um, he said, I don't believe in the higher power, but I'm haunted by regrets for what I've done with my life. What can I do? And I said, well, 
there is a technique developed by the VA where you say, um, imagine that you're sitting with a kind moral authority. It could be from a believer. It could be a, a deity. Deity uh, could be a spiritual guide. It could be a friend or an imaginary figure. But that moral authority loves you and wants you happy, uh, has your back, and uh, he will hear your pain and feel it with you. You will probably express understanding and empathy and confidence that I trust that you will use those negative experiences and and uh, grow from them so that you can be more helpful to others. So that's feeling forgiven. Then we forgive ourselves because as my old roommate at West Point said, my company mate said, what did we know when we were 18 or 48 or 68? We're all kind of learning. Then we forgive others, including caregivers who may have offended. What did they know? And then we seek forgiveness. And sometimes the only thing we could do for poor choices is, is to choose to live a, a good life, a virtuous life. Um, there are things that feed the soul. And we, again, we don't read about that too much in psychology books. But uh, some very interesting research. When veterans with severe PTSD uh, were asked about their spirituality, those with adaptive spirituality responded the best to PTSD treatment. And they defined adaptive spirituality as um, uh, being involved in in spiritual practices like reading Holy Writ or prayers, things like that, being in a, uh, a, a community, a group, feeling that they were collaborating with their higher power, not being judged and isolated. And they understood forgiveness and forgiving and being forgiven. Um, and so there are skills to just sometimes simply ask, were there any spiritual practices in your life that used to be comforting and soothing that might still be useful. And sometimes I've found that also awakens things that maybe haven't been thought of for literally decades. That oh, I remember that I used to say this prayer with my grandfather and it was comforting to me then. That's something yes. you can call up from the past to the present. The other thing I wanted to just um, piggyback on what you said, you know, I've traveled so many places around the world after disasters. And one of the things I've seen about spiritual practices that seem to be very important for many in many different cultures, in many different um, uh, faith traditions and in spiritual expressions, as I would say, what is helping you get through this, whatever it might be? And if I was in Haiti, they might say, I've got Jesus right here in my heart. And they take a deeper parasympathetic breath. In China, after the Sichuan earthquake, oh, the teachings of Buddha, the same breath. Mm -hmm. it, you know, in um, Nepal, it might be one of the, the gods of Hinduism. So it was the same breath. But it was it was linked to their spiritual beliefs, and you could see the healing that would come over their their entire um, body. And then the expressions were often about something that was more compassionate and hopeful. Very um, wonderful way that we're designed as human beings. So go ahead, adaptive spirituality. Though I like that term. Thank um, you. Um, yes, I am satisfied having interviewed World War II combat survivors and amputees and and POWs and rape survivors. Love is the healing agent, and I used yeah. to hesitate to say that. It sounded unscientific, but it changes us. You it can measure us. 
measure the brain, everything. measure the body. It's the chemistry of our bodies. It is, we're wired to be loved and to, to give love. <clears throat> Mother Teresa said it first, but Barbara Fredrickson, who is a scientist, said it almost in identical words. Um, so anyway, so um, there are ways to reintroduce joy into our lives, uh, you know, scheduling things that used to be pleasant that maybe we've forgotten to do. And, and often that happens with depression and trauma. You, you get stressed, you stop doing the things that were fun, and then you get into a hole and you think nothing's going to work. And so in a very structured way, you can say, here are 300 items, check it if it's ever been fun in the past, uh, check it again if it's something you think might make you feel good, and then make a plan to, to do some of those on a regular basis. Well, so and that, I also, and isn't it the other, the other thing too, just like when you have the imaginal field, they can imagine whatever that resourceful thing is that's on the checklist and imagine it with them right now in the present moment. And that would, you know, that can evoke those same sensations and experiences of joy that they may have right, experienced years right, ago. Right. That's our resource development in the community resilience. Say, that's, yeah. that's what you call resourcing. That's right. Resource build. development. So the yeah. same thing. So did we get to all eight? Is that, was that? Um, well, eight is having to do with um, therapy. And I, I'd like to just mention two that I'm so super impressed with. Uh, people are often familiar with EMDR, eye movement, desensitization, yes. and reprocessing. Very effective, very validated. Department of Defense uses it. There is a woman who has taken EMDR so much further. Uh, and, and, and she started, she has a real interest in, in drama and, and the arts. And so she started to change it. And her trainer said, look, you either got to stop doing this new stuff or else don't call it EMDR. And so she calls it accelerated resolution therapy. And to me, it is brilliant. Uh, so she'll start, and we would relate to this, Elaine. She starts by saying, okay, when you think about that traumatic event from year four or whatever, start with where do you feel it in your body? Let's process that with eye movements. So now you're back in the resilience zone. Then let's bring up the image because so much of the stuff that happens in the early years is um, processed and stored in the right brain with images. Let's soothe and settle that one with eye movements. Now let's imagine you erase that. Maybe it's with a racer or a broom and re-script it. You know, you're the director of your life. What would that look like if if that happened differently in a way that felt good. And then ultimately, let's imagine you're about to cross a bridge and before you cross it, you're gonna dump off any remaining baggage such that when you go over that bridge, your life is beautiful and normal and happy. And then let's reinforce that with I'm, I've seen, she has in, sometimes in one session, she will do it, take many therapists a whole year to do. And, 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 and what is this therapist's name? Uh, Lainey Rosenzweig. All right. Lainey Rosenzweig. Well, I'm going to have to look her up. Maybe we'll yeah. get her on the show. Accelerated resolution therapy. It's, okay. it's, it, to me, it's just brilliant because it, it brings so many healing elements in a, in a rather directive way, and not just asking people to free associate, which can be helpful too, but this seems to work even faster. So 
I, I cannot believe that you've got you got through all eight, first of all, and you get, you've given us a really good example of why this is so important to read your book. We have just a few minutes left. So, you know, Glenn, I just, you know, want to ask you, you know, what are some parting thoughts that you would like to leave our listeners with of what, you know, you've had, you know, such a lived experience. I just so admire the work that you do. And, and, and you know, I would love to learn more about the work that you and your wife are doing in addictions as well. So what are some parting thoughts that you would like to leave our, our listeners with today? Well, thank you for those kind of sentiments. And I feel the way that way about your work as well. I would say you don't have to suffer for decades. There are healing solutions. There are skills. And often we suffer not because we choose to suffer, but we just don't know the way uh, not to suffer. And those are skills that can be learned. Um, sometimes it's hard to find. You might find it with a good therapist, sometimes in a good book, but you just don't have to suffer without hope. Um, but again, to me, the things that consistently work are grounded in love. If you can feel love for your pain, that tends to soothe those scars. And so, so much of what we do is is just helping people feel like they matter. Um, you know, you don't have to be perfect. You just have to realize you're of worth, that you are worthwhile, meaning worth the while to grow and to heal. And so don't, don't say stuck. If you can't afford professional help, you know, find a good book. Um, Albert Ellis used to say most of the stuff he taught could be taught in a, in a grade school by a teacher or a book. And that's what I feel about a lot of mental health skills. Well, and that's what I feel about your book. So say the name of your book one more time. The Adverse Childhood Experiences Recovery Workbook. And I really would encourage people to go out there and buy it. And I, and I guess the other thing, Glenn, I want to say, I know that you have also worked with a lot of veterans and law enforcement, and that can be a tough crowd. And I know that you extend that love to them in healing because there's so much suffering that happens in that world and i know that's important too right now in our world mm. it certainly is it certainly is um you were asking me before about uh aha moments i remember one cop that was traumatized by holding a baby that he couldn't resuscitate after he drowned the baby was the same age of his own child and uh you know, he learned how to rework his nightmares and re and rescript the image so that now he was holding a sleeping baby who wasn't any any longer blue around the lips. So there are just so many ways we get stuck and think we'll never get out of this. There are ways to get out of that. Yeah. Well, I just like to say thank you so much for coming on the show. I have learned a lot today, and I'm sure our listeners have as well. And for our listeners, I just want you to remember what else is true. I think Glenn and I have devoted our life to that, um, seeing suffering and also helping people to find ways that um, can lead them out of that suffering. So um, until we meet again, this is Elaine Miller-Karras signing off for Resiliency Within and remember what else is true in your life. Thank you so much for joining us this week for Resiliency Within. Please tune in again next Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Elaine Miller-Karras, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll talk again soon.
Resiliency Within, with host Elaine miller Karras is brought to you by Trauma Resource Institute, Incorporated. Visit TraumaResourceInstitute.com.